at Tuesday's Virtual Video News Connected TV Advertising Preview 2023. 22 speakers on five sessions provided critical insights about the industry and its future direction. We discuss our key takeaways. Inside the stream. This is Will Richmond from Video News, and that was Colin Dixon briefly at the top from Endscreen Media. Hey, Colin, that CTV preview is in the books. How do you think everything went from your perspective? I enjoyed it a lot, Will. I loved my panel. We had a great discussion about lower funnel functionality, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get to that in a minute. But have you been able to catch your breath? It's, it must have been exhausting. <laughs> Yeah, you know, as I like to tell people, it's it's just a little bit of work putting these things together. <laughs> Keeps me busy. Um, yes, indeed. But before we get to the conference, which we are going to talk about, because there was absolutely fascinating uh, points brought up during during the conference, we're going to do our news stories, and you're going to get us started. Yeah, so um, this is actually a continuation of a news story that I mentioned last week, which was that... Um, YouTube's CEO, now former CEO, Susan Wojcicki, sorry, uh, announced that she was stepping away and that Neil Mohan, who is the chief product officer of YouTube, was going to take on the CEO role. And this week, Neil wrote a letter slash blog post to the YouTube community outlining what he sees as his main or the company's main 2023 priorities. And it was significant for a few reasons. One is that, um, you know, YouTube for the enormous size that it is, which is obviously enormous, actually communicates, I I think, very infrequently to the world. And, you know, they have their blog and their ad blog and so forth. So, you know, they're periodically addressing the external world, but it's really rare to hear from the CEO or even a very senior person at YouTube what their strategic priorities are, how they're looking at the world, et cetera. I mean, that was something that was so uh, really cool when I interviewed Neil on the main stage at NAB Show 2016, when he was chief product officer of YouTube, was that it was just for me, it was like a real rarity. I mean, never mind, it was obviously a rarity to do a keynote interview with somebody in front of 2,500 people at any B show. But uh, most important, it was just a rarity to actually engage with a senior YouTube executive in public. That's seven years ago now, but this week, Neil released his 2023 priority letter. And again, it being a rarity, I paid attention to, you know, kind of try to close, pay close attention to reading between the lines. And basically, Neil at a high level said that their number one job is supporting their creators. That's not going to be breaking news to anybody. That's always the way YouTube has defined its mission in life. And he talked at length about support, how supporting creators really means providing them with the most number of high impact revenue opportunities possible. And in that vein, ran through a number of different initiatives, some of which are already out there, some of which are coming, some of which are developing, that they're doing to support creators. So just very quickly, in no particular order, Neil called out the idea of YouTube channel memberships, 
shopping capabilities, uh, gaming communities, adapting shorts to be on the connected TV in the living room, the uh, podcasting features that they've rolled out. Podcasting is now actually, uh, YouTube is the second most, second biggest destination for listening to podcasts now. He talked about, at, again, a very high level, what YouTube is starting to do with artificial intelligence. Again, no details, but certainly sounds like they're really leaning into AI and they're going to be releasing creator tools on that front soon. Um, he talked about gaming. He talked about how they believe that uh, YouTube is responsible for having created 2 million jobs all over the world related to the YouTube community. And also talked about privacy and protection, especially for the kids, the young audience that uses the YouTube Kids app. So it was a very comprehensive letter. Again, not that long on details, which I've sort of learned over the years is YouTube style. They, they don't release a ton of details, um, but they keep doing their thing. And for the most part, that thing is pretty darn impressive. They are, again, as we've talked about many times in this podcast, they are the 800-pound gorilla of the non-subscription VOD world. You know, we can certainly talk about Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and Peacock and Paramount and everybody else, but when it comes to the ad-supported world, they are the 800-pound gorilla. Nobody else, Facebook, Twitch, etc., can be mentioned in even the same breath with YouTube. And they obviously see a big, big opportunity ahead of them. And, you know, Susan was very successful overseeing the business for 15 years. And my hunch is Neil is going to be equally successful, if not more successful over the next 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that he called out specifically CTV, uh, the CTV world, Will. And I've got to tell you that I, I think that YouTube has emerged as the most important property in CTV. Um, by far, it, it, it is uh, consuming more time uh, between it and YouTube TV. According to Nielsen, it has made all the right moves, which is it's added primetime channels, which now lets you to get, allows you to get premium TV. It has um, even got into sports with NFL Sunday Ticket. And I, I, you know, when I talk to people, I'm just so surprised how many people just volunteer to me. Oh, I watch an awful lot of YouTube video on TV now. It, it's just, yeah. I think it's not only the, the 800 pound gorilla in the video, video ad market, I think it's the 800 pound gorilla emerging as the 800 pound gorilla in CTV. Well, I'll add to that list then, Colin, at the risk of being redundant, I have actually been watching a lot of YouTube on TV. And in particular, there's something that I've been watching a lot of, which is that I am going to see Bruce Springsteen next week, um, actually in two weeks rather, and have been watching a lot of his live concert performances on Vivo and doing so on my Roku's, sometimes on my iPad, sometimes on my phone, but to your point, increasingly on the big screen. And especially for music and even more especially for live concerts where the energy and the interaction between the artist and the attendees 
is such a significant part of the experience and really differentiates it from just listening to a studio recorded song. Um, I've been really into it. I mean, I, I think the experience of watching YouTube on TV, again, live concert videos on YouTube, on TV, in surround sound is really, really fantastic yep. and is only going to become more of a thing, quote unquote, going forward as more people discover it. Yeah, me too. Me too. Well, we should probably get on, Will. I'm going to I'm going to talk about the big story for me this week. And that was um, listeners to the podcast will remember we interviewed David Gandler a couple of weeks ago. If you haven't listened to that interview, you really should. It's a great it's a great discussion about where the virtual MVPD business is headed. And Fubo actually announced its results this week and it did pretty well in the fourth quarter. Uh, apparently it added 214,000 subscribers. Now, that may not sound very many to you. You've got to remember that Fubo only had 1.1, 1.2 million subscribers at the beginning of the year. So that's a really big gain. It has acquired 316,000 over the full year, which is a 28% annual increase, far above the 5% a minus 3% that was achieved by Hulu Live and Sling TV over that period. So it is probably the, the fastest growing of all of the virtual MVPDs. And ad revenue has become a thing, even with a relatively small audience, 1.4, 1.5 million audience, the company has been able to generate 100 million in ad revenue in 2022, which is a 37% increase. So that's all to the good. It's really been doing extremely well. And part of the engine that's really helping drive that is he says that existing advertisers increased spending by 85%. The company added 175 new advertisers, he says, and they added 100 plus fast linear channels. And as you'll know, if you listen to this interview uh, that we did with, with David a couple of weeks ago, They've been distributing the Fubo Sports Network through fast services like Pluto TV and Samsung TV Plus. So this is really, I think, a lesson in, in how you really go about monetizing the assets that you have through advertising. It's, it's the, they're doing extremely well there. Now, only, there's, I'll just note one thing that we should really take, take notice of. Um, as, we did, as we talked about on the podcast... They've just instituted a big price increase on their customers. There was a flat $5 per month increase across uh, across everybody. And then everybody with access to a regional sports network is going to see a mandatory regional sports network fee of $11 a month if they have access to one RSN and 14 if they have two or more. And it turns out that pretty much everybody Every subscriber to Fubo, I think like 96% have access to at least one RSN. So that is a big increase, a minimum of a $16 increase in price. Now, David said that he thinks that they have a lot of flexibility with their audience. He talked about the, this on the podcast that he felt like that people really understand the value of sports and so that they'll appreciate it and stay with it. He said that actually he said there seems to be more pricing power in a package where people understand the value of the sports and they want their local sports teams. 
Um, but we are really going to find out because at the end of Q1, that price increase will have been in full effect. And so we'll see how they do with subscribers in Q1 and Q2 of, of this year. Uh, but uh, anyway, looks pretty good. All full speed ahead for Fubo TV at the moment. Yeah. So just a couple of thoughts, Colin. I uh, I've been obviously heads down at the conference, so I only saw the headlines on Fubo. But as you said, it looked like it was a strong quarter from a subscriber standpoint and also from an advertising standpoint, which is all pretty impressive, given the headwinds blowing through both the pay TV industry with cord cutting and also the advertising industry with the recession and the economic headwinds and everything else. Uh, right. So it, I want to follow up by looking at that stuff a little bit more. I, um, cause I did find it a little bit surprising to be candid, but good for them for sure. I did note that their stock took a bit of a hit this week because they actually uh, went out and raised another 60 or 80 million. I can't remember at the market price which obviously more shares out means dilution for everybody, means stock price goes down. And that's exactly what happened for Fubo. So they, um, you know, they kind of suppressed their own stock in that way, but obviously raised money, 60 or 80 million, I can't remember what the number is, which is, which is all very positive. I just did want to mention one other quick thing, Colin, before we leave the topic, which is that this whole world of sports on TV is which as you just noted is critical to fubo's model is going through such an incredible period of flux right now and i know we spoke a few weeks ago about the impending bankruptcy of um, diamond slash bally's rsn that's going to happen imminently it's just a question of when this week we also saw news that warner brother or last week rather warner brothers discovery is essentially closing down three of the RSNs that it owns, that it inherited as part of the AT&T deal. Uh, I think one is in Denver, one is in Pittsburgh, and one is somewhere else. And rather than even trying to sell them, they essentially are looking to give them away. Literally, they want to give those RSNs away just to get them off the books so they don't continue to absorb the losses. The third thing is that MLB, Major League Baseball, and other professional networks apparently are actively putting together their plans for how to absorb these situations where the RSN just goes out of business or declares bankruptcy and isn't able to operate any further. And to that point, there was a quick article I did see this week that MLB hired three senior executives from the RSN world. In fact, I think a couple of them actually came from the Warner Brothers Discovery networks that are trying to be unloaded, though I don't remember that exactly. But in any event, it was tangible evidence that MLB and I believe from what I've read, the other professional sports leagues are actively now making plans for some kind of a post RSN world in at least some of the markets in which their teams operate. And the consequences of that, we don't have time to get into right now, but the consequences of that are really, really significant. They the, sure are. The RSNs have been absolute cash machines. 
yep. for the sports industry over the last 30 odd years. And I think what we're all witnessing right now is essentially the implosion of the RSN network. And what happens after that is a complete unknown. But one thing that I would assert is that if I were a you know, top level athlete right now, I would be locking up the longest term contract possible. <laughs> 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, whatever the team is willing to put on a table, I will gladly take it because I find it extremely hard to believe that athletes are going to get paid more than what they're getting paid today come five years from now. I just don't see those economics. Yeah, and, and I noted an article this week that said that the MLB Players Union had just won a big increase in salaries. That the average salary, if I think I'm remembering this right, the average salary for an MLB player is now over $3 million. That's uh, <laughs> that's they're doing what what you said. Well, they're trying to lock in those uh, those salaries, but yeah. Um, and by the way, I would I would make it if I were negotiate if I were a player agent, I was negotiating a contract for ten years or fifteen years. I would mandate that at least the back half value of my player's contract was in some way put into some type of an escrow account. Because I think there's a chance come five, six, seven years from now. The that money won't be there. Exactly. Yeah. These owners yeah. are going to be going around with their tin pots saying, oh, sorry, that $340 million contract we signed for 15 years with so-and-so, uh, guess what? We're reneging on the back half of that. And if you don't like that, take us to court. Thank you very much. Yeah. So if I yeah. were a player agent, boy, I would be looking for some serious escrow money and Otherwise, I would just take a shorter term deal for more money per year and just not worry about it because yeah. big yeah. changes, big, big changes are coming to the sports business. You bet. You bet. And this is a topic that we should return to. But in the meantime, let's get to the conference world. Why don't you kick <laughs> us off with some of the some of the highlights and then yeah. I'll talk about some of the highlights for me. Yeah, here we are ranting on about sports and stuff and we're not even able to get to our main subject today. Anyway, the conference I thought was great. Uh, I was really pleased with all the sessions. I'm just going to share a few quick takeaways on from having listened to the sessions myself and taken notes and interacted with the panelists, et cetera. Uh, just a few quick things, and I mentioned this in my welcoming remarks, is that while each of the sessions had its own lane, there were lots and lots of different intersecting and overlapping topics. So some questions and topics got raised multiple times, which allows attendees to hear different perspectives on similar same questions. I would say a few things from my standpoint. Number one is that um, there's a lot of energy, as I heard throughout all the sessions, there's a lot of energy in the industry right now being devoted to trying to figure out how to define the services that are being offered in the market or coming to market. We have lots of references about you know, FAST is the child of SVOD, but the grandchild of pay TV, but actually the sibling Sister, of yeah. AVOD and the yep. stepbrother of, <laughs> I mean, yep. it was hilarious listening to everybody, uh, not I shouldn't say everybody, but lots of folks try to position what's happening in the market right now in like a familial context to help listeners understand. And it's not even worth getting too far down that 
uh, trail right now because I don't really know that there is a specific familial model that <laughs> streaming can be compared to, but I, I just noted that I thought it was really interesting the amount of energy that is being devoted to trying to define it because I think people think, you know, there's no surprise to anybody, but people think in terms of mental models. So when something new comes along, it's very important for people to think of it in a mental model. It's like yeah. X, it's like Y except this. It's that meets this. And that's the way we, you know, are able to frame and sort of simplify the complicated world that we all engage with. So I thought that was really funny, number one. Yeah, I did too. If you want to, and if people want to hear that conversation, what are the conversations <laughs> where that happened? They should listen to the opening panel. And it was Paul, it was Brian Weiser, uh, of Madison and Wall going back and forward with Avon Goldman of Media Ocean. It was a really fun, fun conversation as they battled analogies. Brian Weezer. Oh, did I say? Sorry. Yeah, I mean, that was happening right off the top. It happened throughout other sessions as well. In any event, uh, you know, more substantively, I, I really enjoyed the conversations and the remarks around, number one, how and this is really was the thrust of your session, but how CTV advertising is evolving to be a full funnel and lower funnel medium. And the very notion of what a television ad is and has been for the last 60, 70 years is going through this fundamental transformation driven by uh, technology enablement. And that's really the beauty of CTV at the end of the day, which is that it provides the technological foundation for ads to be something far more than on TV, far more than they've ever been. And I, I think that's a tremendously exciting prospect for anybody who works in the industry. And, you know, just to put a fine point on it, I thought David Pajunas from AMC Network said it really well, which is he said he believes that sometime in the you know, relatively near future, not like our grandchildren's lifetime type of thing, but relatively near future, all ads are going to be interactive and that an ad that is not interactive, just like an app on a phone where you can pinch and zoom and interact and so forth, any ad that you as a viewer will not be able to interact with in his words, is going to be considered lame, quote unquote lame. And I had never really thought about it in such stark terms, but David really did put a fine point on it. It's pretty mind boggling to think that we could be entering a world in which when you turn your TV on, every single ad that you see can be engaged with. I don't know. What do you think, yeah. Al? Yeah. No, I think I think you. I think that's a really fascinating comment. I mean, Jen Sock, who's a Group M. She sort of put a little bit of a damper on that. I asked her specifically about interactivity and she said that, you know, there, there are some times when people just don't want to interact and, you know, I, I guess uh, an ad during a Game of Thrones episode, which you're going to get now, I, I, I assume, with uh, the monetization efforts going on at Discovery, um, that the, the, that probably isn't a good candidate to be interactive with, but uh, ads between the between the episodes, ads in other content, absolutely. But but I heard that comment as well about about everything's going to be interactive, and I'm going to tell you, well, I I think in the end it's probably going to be, and the reason the reason is very simple. 
that it will just be baked into the creative, right? The creative process for ads going forward is just going to encompass all of this additional functionality. It will be there whether you need it, whether you use it, and whether you interact with it or not. It's just there. So in other words, a, a QR code during the Super Bowl just appears whether you choose to actually scan it is up to you. Ex but it's exactly. going to be, the opportunity to interact is going to be prevalent. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that, the reason it gets baked in is really important because then it becomes so cheap, you don't think about doing it. It just is always done. And I think it's extremely likely that that will be the case going forward. You know, we can argue about Jennifer Aniston's sweater buying and all of that pizza, ordering pizza and all of that nonsense going forward. But Plaza, Aubrey Plaza. But, Aubrey Plaza. Oh, did you say ordering else? pizza or Aubrey Plaza? I said ordering pizza. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you said Aubrey Plaza. <laughs> no, okay, edit, edit all that out. Go ahead. Well, I might leave it in. But we can argue about all of that. But the fact that, that it's just part and parcel of the creative process and it's there if you want it, I think I absolutely believe that that's the case. The infrastructure will be there to deliver it. Yeah, I, I like that framing, Colin, the way you just described that. When the creative process is expected to bake in interactivity, but not mandated by the viewer, then things can really accelerate and, um, and a lot of great learnings can be generated, right? You know, you, you, yeah. put, you put the interactive component out there and you see who bites and when they bite, you see what they get into and yep. you refine it going forward. But again, you don't mandate. It's not one of these forced things where the viewer has to choose a new yep. ending to the show or, you know, that feels sort of contrived. Yep. So I, I do like that framing. I, I was going to say related to all this, Colin, that a comment that I heard a couple of times throughout and, and, I, and I believe for a long time going all the way back to when I wrote probably 10 plus years ago that the age of a Super Bowl ad costing $10 million per spot was going to happen. And now we're at about seven, seven and a half this year is going to happen eventually because of what we're talking about here, the interactivity and the connection that advertisers can make between spending and outcomes. And, and obviously there's a whole attribution conversation to be had there, which also came up a number of times throughout the conference. But as attribution gets proven in, interactivity gets developed further and advertisers can draw more distinct correlation between spending and results. In some ways, this is search marketing and social marketing, media marketing part two. It's basically becomes a formulaic process for advertisers. How much money do they want to spend? In other words, how much do they want to turn the knob up to get X or Y or Z results? Because mm -hmm. it's going to be formulaic, just like it is in social and search. Spend X, get back Y. It's that simple. Yep. Yeah. So this is probably a really good time for me to talk about some of the things that we we talked about on my panel, which was all about the CTV becoming a full funnel, um, uh, full, full, funny, full funnel delivery mechanism. And I mentioned Jen Sock, she's executive director of Channel Solutions at Group M. She, I, I'm going to start with what she said at the end. I asked people to sort of imagine you're three to five years in the future and you're looking back uh, uh, now. And what were the pivot points here that allowed things to develop into full funnel? And she said that she said there were two things. She says this, 
she's looking for support for new types of measurement. And then she talked about attribution, the fact that um, attribution was key, connecting attribution to management, management uh, measurement was key. Uh, but she's also said that right now it's on two planes that they aren't connected. But the great thing is that we actually heard evidence that they that they are beginning to become connected right from the panelists on uh, uh, who are participating. So Eric Smith, who's director of ad sales at Roku, it was great that he was there because they recently did a deal with Cox Automotive. And we also had Olga Weinraub, who's Senior Director of Enterprise Marketing Partnerships at Cox Automotive uh, on the panel. Cox Automotive owns properties like Kelly Blue Book. Um, so, so Eric talked about the fact now that using their data sets, they can, you know, they can present an ad for a BMW or a Toyota or something and they can know, they can identify the person that's seeing that ad. And then using Olga's data set, they can figure out if that person actually went over to Kelly Blue Book and interacted looking for that vehicle. And that kind of blew my mind. That's exactly the sort of attribution that has, has been um, really difficult to get in advertising circles and Olga really brought it home to me the value of this to advertisers you can if you can make these connections then you can do things to optimize campaigns you could never do before for example how many ads do you have to show a person to nudge them to go and make that next step to take that next step well, with this connection between Roku's data set and Cox Automotive's data set, you can do it. You can say it took three or four repetitions of the ad, that person seeing that ad, to nudge them to get to come out to Kelly Blue Book and take a look and start down that path of purchase. That is that is a way of getting efficient ad campaigns that we have never had, or it's just incredibly difficult to get that. So I thought that that was that was a fantastic example of of what we were what we're really looking for. Yeah, and I agree with you. I don't want to be a skunk at the proverbial skunk at the picnic. When that segment of your session was playing out, a couple of thoughts came to me. Number one, very quickly. Number one is that. You know, attribution, as Eric said, Eric Smith from Roku said, attribution is a really, really hard problem. It has always yep. been a really hard problem. It's going to continue to be a really hard problem because part of attribution is where to assign responsibility. Do you give it to the last touch? Do you recognize that it's multi-touch? Who gets the credit? Who derives the benefit from getting the credit? It's a really challenging problem. So that's number one. The second thing is, and this is a far bigger conversation than we're going to have time for today, but as I listen to the panelists and I continue to kind of talk to folks in the industry and everything else, I think this whole measurement thing is needs a, a, a more full airing because measurement continues, in my view, to be framed in a way that 
suggests there needs to be some kind of a quote-unquote currency or even multiple currencies. And in the past, in TV, we've had one currency, Nielsen. There are multiple currencies in the digital world. It's not clear to me what if, and I'll be a little controversial here when I say this, but what if any currency is going to be required in the connected TV space if connected TV evolves to be a full funnel medium? Because by definition, when you're measuring thoroughly your attributable results, you don't need a currency on which to transact. There's no need because you already know what the value of your spend is. You don't need a third-party currency to validate that. Now, I know that that completely flies in the face of how TV is bought today and you don't get from point X to point Y, but I do think there is a little bit of confusion being created throughout the industry with the discussion of currencies, advanced measurement, advanced currency, you know, all these different attribution. There's a lot more going on there, I think. And from my standpoint, it needs to be further, further vetted. I think you are right. I think this is absolutely true. And it's one of the things that's always, I thought the real promise of CTV was that you, that you could say with surety what was going on. It, whereas before you could not say with surety you had to sample and you had to you had to use statistics to figure out what was going on and therein lies the dominance of Nielsen for 30 years and however long it was so I, I do agree with you that that yeah I'm not sure that this that framing it in that way that you know multiple currencies etc is 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 going to be needed going forward because of this ability I mean, the, the, the issue is that in the absence of currencies, everybody gets to grade their own homework. And mm -hmm. we've seen what happens when companies get to grade their own homework. How many oh, yeah. millions of dollars of fines and penalties has Facebook Meta paid over the years after subsequently admitting that they incorrectly graded their homework? So. It's a scary prospect not to have a third-party currency or multiple third-party currencies out there. But I do think, as I said before, it's, it's a work in progress. I, I don't completely have my head around all of this, and I'm always very interested in listening to the Jen Sox and the Ashley Arenas and the Susan Shikovers and the Mike Laws and you know on and on it goes, all the executives in the business who have spoken at video news conferences about their thoughts about currency and measurement. Anyway, yeah. what else do you I, have I from just, yours? I just want to mention one other thing from my panel. It was a great panel, and luckily you've posted all of those, and I'm sure you'll talk about that at the end. Um, I wanted to mention something that Sean Doherty Jr., who's COO and co-founder of World, talked about. And this is, again, this, is, this goes back to attribution. Um, and, and action, more specifically, action. They have this really cool new product called Perform. And what Perform is, is it, it allows a, somebody that has content that they are, isn't getting very good visibility, it allows that provider to identify viewers of that type of content and advertise directly to them in that 
in that uh, in that content. So, for example, a simple example is maybe your you, you don't think your Lord of the Rings show is getting as much uh, viewership as you as you want. You know that Game of Thrones folks love that. Well, this allows you to identify people that are watching Game of Thrones and hit them with an ad for your show and allow them to connect directly to that show. So it's a fascinating product. They're able to do this, Will, with very, very little data. It's all driven by machine learning. You know, to do this in the past required a ton of metadata uh, on the shows, on all of the shows involved in the ecosystem. But they're using machine learning to just watch behaviors and be, be able to do this without the huge investment in massive, massive amounts of metadata. And because they're looking at behavior, they're able to understand really unusual relationships and leverage them. So for example, a Game of Thrones viewer might like to watch old Westerns on a Sunday afternoon. And you can leverage that data to place an ad for your Game of Thrones-like content in that Western on Sunday afternoon. So it's a really fascinating product. It's something that we really need in the, in in the industry because I've got to tell you, there's a lot of fast linear channels that really are looking for ways of being found and the, the, the tools to do that are very poor. Well, on that note, Colin, and just to start bringing this home because we're getting a little over time here. We are. Can't leave this discussion without mentioning FAST as you just did and the session that was devoted to FAST potentially leading to SLOW, the acronym SLOW, S-V-O-D, Losses on the Way, which is what you and I talked about a couple of weeks ago on a podcast. and. Uh, rather than deliberate on that particular issue, I just wanted to say that uh, I thought the fast, slow session moderated by Eric John at IEB was a real highlight because what he elicited from the panelists was their really, I think, well-articulated points that the old ways of programming a TV network, quote-unquote, based on demos, that traditional model, is now melting away with FAFs that allow programmers to program based on mood states rather than demos. And Vivo uh, talked about this, Anissa talked about this for a while, the dozens of FAST channels that they've launched that are targeted to users' mood states as opposed to their demos. And Beth Anderson, who we just had on the podcast a couple of weeks ago from BBC, also drove this point uh, very well, that BBC is completely breaking away from the notion of programming based on demos, but rather based on mood states. And when you combine that concept of fast based on mood states with interactive capabilities in CTV ads, that to me smells like a big cash register is about to ring. and. Again, I think that is, is, is tremendously exciting for everybody in, in the industry who is kind of getting onto that program, launching fast channels in a customized way based on mood states and linking those channels with interactive, actionable ads. That, that's really, I think, where the leading edge of the industry is these days. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It's funny, I was just looking over at my notes and I noted that down as well, exactly that. Um, 
And what Beth was saying was that they're thinking about Antiques Roadshow, Doctor Who. These are shows that bring a feeling, they're comfort food. Um, people turn to them not because they're crazy for science fiction or they want to look for and you know they want to look at antiques they they want that comfortable feeling that those shows bring to them so it's very definitely a mood thing and i totally agree with you i think there's a lot to lot to play here vivo is very active in this with their music channels they've launched several mood-based channels uh, that uh, that I think are doing seem to be doing pretty darn well for them. So yeah, definitely a move to look for in the future. A move to mood, shall we say? Shall we say? <laughs> but I think we're just about out of time. Uh, I think here. we're more than just about out of time, Colin. We are way into way double, over. We are in double <laughs> OT right now. So listeners, thanks for your forbearance. And obviously, as you said before, Colin, all the video session videos are up on Video News now. So freely available. Enjoy them. Share them. Chat with them. Uh, and hopefully get some benefit from them. And I think that wraps us for this week, Colin, right? It does indeed. Okay, thanks for listening, and we'll see you all again next week. Inside the Stream is a production of InScreen Media and Video News. All rights reserved. <laughs>